This is LOL DC. I'm Sheena Satum. I'm an Army brat, a self-help enthusiast, and I manage one of the top real estate teams in Washington, DC. I have three small kids, and I've had the privilege of serving on several nonprofit charity boards. I also run a women's empowerment group, and I teach real estate classes across the country. And all these amazing opportunities have allowed me to meet some of the most amazing people who I can't wait to introduce to you. We'll venture through DC and talk about some of the exciting things we're doing to make our communities a better place. One of the most recent projects we invested in was a shower truck for the homeless. We live in one of the most stressed out areas of the whole country. I think it's time for disruption. So sit back, relax. It's time for LOL DC. So I just got out of the film on the basis of sex, and you all probably know it's the story about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'd say about every three minutes, I felt that triumph feeling that you feel after those great sports films uh, like Miracle and Rudy, where you're just beating your chest in excitement. That's really how I felt. It was really exciting. It was a great film. And I think it's a really interesting time for this film to be coming out, especially with the Me Too movement. There was a really great scene, I think one of my favorite scenes in the film, where Ruth and her daughter, they're leaving an office building um, and it's pouring rain outside and there are some construction workers outside and they are catcalling the two ladies. And Ruth says to her daughter quietly, she, her daughter's probably 14 or 15 at the time, she says to her daughter, Shh, don't say anything, you know, don't respond. And she, she sort of quietly calls a cab. And her daughter rips the umbrella away and goes right in their faces. And and I don't remember the exact words, but essentially told them to stop being so disgusting. And uh, it was a very aggressive move. And Ruth, her mother, looks at her, looks at Jane, and she's complete shock um, at first. And then she realizes that times have changed. And it really emboldens her to take the next step. So coming out of the film, I had a lot of thoughts, but I think what I thought about most um, was what it's like to be a manager, be a boss in this time um, when we have young women um, who are working with us, for us, and what that means and how things have changed. I've been in the workforce now for, I guess, let's see, I'm 36, so about a decade and a half since leaving college. And so I've had a lot of time to not only work for others, I kind of wanted to share kind of my lessons learned and um, what I think our responsibility is as managers, as leaders, um, especially female leaders, because I think times have changed. I think our responsibilities have changed and there's a new way to do things. So here's what I've got for you. I think we should consider our positions as managers, as leaders, not simply about achieving the goals of ourselves, our own goals in the organization's goals, but also how we can help those under us succeed. And that, I believe, is how you truly build a legacy and do more than just fill the role, but you're elevating yourself and making a difference for the lives of those on your team. So while they are serving you, you give them far more back than they ever expected. And here are four ways I think that managers can and should do that. So the first is being a learning-based team, and that starts with you as the leader. Anyone who finds themselves in a management role but hasn't had experience leading has a lot of work to do. And I think that's, that's the case 
for most people, isn't it? Um, that we do really well um, at our jobs and our companies just promote us. I think it's really curious of how that happens and I understand where sort of that need comes in. Um, but I think there's a big gap here. There's a big need for um, a change in how that works. When someone has done really well at their job or they've been there long enough, they're all of a sudden thrown into a management position and managing the fate of others. I frankly think it's absurd. <laughs> Maybe it's a lot absurd. I don't think enough companies spend enough time training managers to be leaders. So it's in our best interest to do that ourselves. As we are working to master our own role, we should also take on something of a second job learning how to be a leader. So how to do that? I think we need to read as much as we can, listen to podcasts, speak with others who lead well. We should be readying ourselves for the next level so that we're more prepared when we get there. And then when we do ascend to the next role, we should continue to self-study and encourage our team to do that as well. Our team, we do a quarterly team book that the team can read together and then come together to talk about every month. Um, encourage everyone on your team to seek training and any and all opportunities to grow themselves personally and professionally. It's not enough to simply fill the role anymore. Um, if you've been given a management role, because the opportunity is so much greater. So that's number one. Two, hold your team members accountable and not once a year. That's way too long to wait to give somebody feedback. Provide feedback frequently. If you can, on a weekly basis. This should be written and in person. It doesn't have to take more than uh, 20 minutes or so. Provide feedback frequently, and this will encourage communication and increase understanding and limit what happens when those two things don't exist, which is that it breeds the potential for folks not understanding each other and then for resentment to grow. So don't wait. Be ready to have those fierce conversations and also to encourage your team. So we're not just looking for sort of the negative feedback, but also the positive feedback. Consider a quarterly review of yourself by your team. This is something that we've been doing for the last year, and I think it's been really helpful. Ask them. Give them permission to ask what you could be doing differently. What else you and the organization could be doing to help them in their growth? Trust me, young people today love the idea of work-life balance and snacks and a nap room, but that does not breed loyalty. Investment in them and their future does. Third, don't be afraid to put your team into uncomfortable positions of growth. How are they at public speaking, for instance? The ability to speak in front of a large group is something very few people, especially women, tend to be comfortable doing. Those that are comfortable almost always have a leg up on those who never take the risk. So find opportunities, make opportunities to improve their public speaking skills. This will also help them in every other facet of their life as they gain new confidence. Finally, the last bit of advice is to do whatever you can to elevate the voices of the young women in your company. I'll take a page for a second from Sheryl Sandberg here. If you see those young women sitting at the back of the room or in the chairs around the table but not at the table, encourage them to join, to sit up closer, to listen and offer an opinion if they have something of value to contribute. It doesn't mean coming in and just speaking and filling up the room with space. I think listening is more important than anything. And once we listen, if we do have something that we can contribute that's going to make a difference, then they should feel comfortable doing so. Let the women on your team know that if they are ever faced with harassment by anyone at their job, to immediately report to you and suggest some ways that they might respond before they come to you so that it never happens to them again. 
I think a lot of times women kind of go into a bit of shock when something like that happens. I know every single job I've ever worked at, I have been harassed in some way by at least one male colleague, um, whether it was them whispering something inappropriate in my ear or touching me inappropriately. And most of the time I froze. Um, and then eventually I did go and report it. But if we can have a different reaction right away, then I think those men rather quickly learn what is and what isn't acceptable. So we train people, um, you know, how we respond tells people how they can treat us. Finally, consider encouraging the female employees to start their own mission-driven efforts in parallel to their jobs. Perhaps it's their own speaker series, maybe it's a book club, anything that provides them the opportunity to lead. And not to say only women can be in those groups, but trying to encourage those women to lead those groups, come up with those ideas, and build them out. These women who came before us have done a great deal, and it's the reason that so many barriers have been broken down, but we do have a ways to go. And it's our responsibility to make it happen. So I encourage anyone in a management position, especially women, to take responsibility and do more. Remember that it will require different activities to produce different results, and we cannot wait. Cool. So thanks so much for being on. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this for months, as you know. <laughs> yep. We are recording. We're actually, for the first time, doing, um, gosh, what do they call this? Like a long distance uh, podcast because we've got a snowstorm happening and you are in Alexandria. Yes. On the other side of DC. Yes. So I wanted to bring you on for a number of reasons. Um, well, first of all, I love you. You are amazing in so many ways. You're one of the most positive people I know. You're one of the most intelligent people I know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're a mom of two. Yep. Newly mom of two. <laughs> so if you had to give your elevator speech, like in a nutshell, Julin is focused on this, has her hands in all these things. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so I've got a couple different things. Obviously, professionally, I am a lobbyist. So I work with Congress. I help run our advocacy program for executives who come to town and want to do Hill Days, want to meet with their legislators. I also run our political action committee for my trade association. So I raise funds from our executives, and then we direct those funds towards our champions on the Hill, which is a lot of <laughs> some interesting dynamics. But then I also have a lot of things that I do on the side. So one thing is that in 2017, I started a different political action committee with a group of parents. It's called Raising Our Future PAC. And we collected over $30,000 in 2017 and 2018 to direct towards candidates who we felt were going to center parenting-centric issues. So things that are going to help parents in their day-to-day -day lives, paid parental leave, affordable childcare, access to universal pre-K, a lot of the things that we know help parents be full economic citizens that we think doesn't get nearly the reflection and attention. Women who are going on maternity leave, there's a company called Mindful Return that I got hooked up with when I was pregnant with my first child. And since then, I've stayed involved. And now I actually coach the course and go through and guide women all across the country as they go through that e-course over a four-week period. We talk about how to 
acquaint yourself with the new you and how to reintegrate yourself in work and how to turn your maternity leave into a leadership opportunity and how to deal with things like overwhelm or anxiety that really afflicts working parents. So I have a lot of fun doing all that. And then I also recently ran for public office. (laughs) So I'm busy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, you do have your hands in a lot of things. And like we mentioned, you are a mom of two kids and you have a husband. So you've got a lot going on. And I think it's pretty exciting. And I want to take people back just a little bit because I think one of the most interesting things and you don't see this that often here. When I first met you, (laughs) you were a Republican. I was and I am no longer a Republican. (laughs) Yeah. So I know that You met your husband. um, Well, you met him. Did you meet him in grad school? I did. We met at uh, George Mason School of Public Policy, where I also met you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It was fate. And you two are both brilliant. So honored to meet you both. And I sort of saw some of the transition. And um, well, he's a Democrat. So was that like um, any particular event that happened? Was it just a lot of discussion, self-reflection, something that happened and, you know, the larger sort of political climate that kind of got your opinions to change? Because I guess what I'll say is I think you know, people like to say they don't want to talk about politics. You hear those time. I don't want to, well, if we're going to talk, we're not, I mean, we talk about politics all the time here and, (laughs) you know, with family or friends, it's like, don't talk about politics. But in my mind, I think I don't love that because I think our politics are our values and our morals and our beliefs. And if we're not talking about those things, then how well do we really know each other? Are we dismissive? Are we really being truthful? And are we really progressing? So I guess my question is, did those deep underlying issues, moral like values change for you? Or do you think it was just you were learning, you were there was some kind of awareness thing happen? Or or what what was it that made you decide to switch? It was a little bit of both. So I guess I'll I'll back up a little and say that I grew up in a Republican household and I got involved with local Republican politics really early on. I rode my bike to a town hall meeting when I was 14 to confront state legislators. I interned in the state Senate my senior year of high school. I ended up volunteering on multiple congressional campaigns and a gubernatorial campaign while I lived in Colorado. And then again, when I went to college in Louisiana. So I stayed really actively involved. I was president of the college Republicans at Tulane. Um, And I think, you know, really what I always tried to be is I always tried to be open to hearing the other side and respectful to hearing the other side. And my first job after college, I worked for a state party. And I won't say which one, but I worked for a state party. And I started to see, you know, different flavors of Republicans. So the Colorado Republicans are are much more libertarian-esque. That's what I grew up with. And then there's Republicans in Louisiana, which are a totally different breed. And then there were totally different Republicans when I went up to the Rust Belt. So it was a little bit of you started to get different flavors of the party and you started to see some of the dynamics. And I, at that point, started running into some things that didn't align with what I personally valued, which I was still comfortable with. I was still fine considering myself a Republican and just saying, all right, I don't believe that, but I agree on these other issues. And therefore, I still see myself as fundamentally a Republican. Then I moved to D.C. I started working in politics on the Hill. I started getting much more intimately involved. We started having debates in public policy about what works and what doesn't. And it became a much more analytical process. And then I met my husband and he 
would challenge me on some of these issues where I maybe wasn't really dug in and I was just taking whatever the party line was. And the more I reflected on that, the more I recognized that those values that I had seen didn't match up really carried through a lot more issues. And so over years of being challenged, over years of really digging into it, and particularly I would say during the 2008 election and subsequent years where I was still considering myself a Republican, but wasn't willing to buy into some of the things we were starting to see within the Republican Party of challenging President Obama on things that weren't true, started to really not sit well with me. And ultimately, that's, I think, what drove me out. And then the further I got from it, the more I realized that my values really matched the Democratic Party more than the Republican Party. And so here I sit, uh, still relatively pro-business Democrat, but unwilling to allow certain things to fly, (laughs) I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, wow, what a journey. There's a few things that I want to touch on there, two things that I think really stuck out to me. And one of those is you talked about, this is interesting to me that you said, even back then in college, you always try to kind of have an open mind about the other side. And I think that is what is so special about you and rare. And you're one of the few people who have very frequent conversations about policy and politics on your Facebook. And it's like, I think everyone tends to walk away a little bit more educated, a little bit more informed, a little more woke, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a positive feeling when they walk away. And that is not something you can say for most um, opportunities to get news or policy information, whether whether it's the news, even, I, you know, I'd mentioned somebody earlier, C-SPAN. I used to go to C-SPAN to try to get, you know, uneditorialized news. And now just the way that people are fighting on, on both sides is just, I, I think, really lowering the quality of political debate and the ability to move forward. So I really love what you do there. And where did you get that from? Like, is that your parents or what made you the kind of, what do you think created that kind of person with that open mind? Because you've been like that since I knew you from a Republican all the way to being becoming a Democrat. I wish I could nail something down because my parents were so not into politics. Like they voted. I remember them being Republicans and I remember them being involved, but It wasn't until I started getting involved in politics and doing local campaign stuff and doing some of the uh, work at the state Senate level that they started paying attention because I don't remember them being particularly politically active when I was a kid, but I was always fascinated by it. I always wanted to hear what people were thinking and why to the point where when I was 16, I was volunteering for the governor's campaign, his reelection. And I did some volunteer thing at the state convention and they had rented out part of a restaurant for the party afterwards. And I had gone at 16 and I remember sitting next to the governor and he looks at me and he goes, Hey, what are the youth of Colorado thinking? And poor guy probably didn't know he was opening a Pandora's box, (laughs) but you know, to his credit, he sat there with me for like 15 or 20 minutes. And we were talking about, accountability and education and statewide assessment testing, because at 16, I was taking statewide assessment tests. And I thought they were ridiculous. And I didn't understand how that would give actionable information to policymakers about what to do to improve schools. My husband grew up tinkering with radios, he would take apart a radio and put it back together. 
this was me. I took apart a policy and tried to understand what it was and why it was that way and why someone might approach it a certain way, which is, again, I think why I ended up switching parties is at some point I was not being able to get good answers to some of what I had been advocating for in the past. And I think that was largely, I just didn't dig into those issues that well. You know, I found the issues that I really cared about and I dug in and then the more I knew, the more I changed. <laughs> I love this. I love it. I think I think you have a brilliant mind and you have a lot of, I mean, I know you know this, you have a lot of drive and yeah, I love that story. <laughs> I think one of the breaking points for me was, and, and this was, and it wasn't the breaking point, but it was one of the first breaking points. The president of the college Democrats, well, I was president of the college Republicans, we started talking about torture and Guantanamo Bay because this was, you know, early 2000s. Yeah. It was when all of that was coming to a head. And we were discussing whether or not it was appropriate for the United States to torture or interrogate or used enhanced interrogation methods, as Dick Cheney always liked to call it, <laughs> during this time frame to try to understand. And one of my parents' really good friends and my neighbor growing up had been the pilot of Flight 93 on 9-11, the one that crashed in Pennsylvania. So I had this personal feeling, this personal attachment to 9-11 that made me much more rigid. And I was like, no, of course we should torture. We have to protect the homeland. But as we got into this discussion on whether or not it was the moral thing to do, the kind of thing you get when you're on college campuses, Right. Yeah. The more I couldn't really find myself being comfortable justifying it. I was like, you're right. That's that's a really good point. And so that was sort of one of the first issues where I had felt really strongly one direction and having a good dialogue with someone that respected my mind as much as I respected theirs. And we asked the hard questions and talked through it and listened that I came away with a changed mind, like it worked, you know? And I remember at some point, now that I'm a Democrat, I remember messaging him years later saying, hey, that was the beginning, by the way. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, wow. He's That's still very involved in politics. He at one point worked on Kristen Gillibrand's Senate campaign. So. <laughs> DC? Uh, no, in New York. Okay. So in New York. Yeah. So the other thing I got from that story that I thought was interesting, your, you know, the story about sort of your transformation is, and I hear people talk a lot about this. Well, I don't like them because they do X, Y, Z. Like the other side will say, well, I don't like them because they, all these, all these nasty things that they do. I did get a little bit out of that story of it seemed like you didn't like the way that the Republicans were playing politics. I'd say, and you probably agree that there's probably blame to go on both sides. You know, there's some stinky politics that happen on both sides. How much of it was stinky politics that you didn't like? And how much of it do you think was policy that you didn't agree with? Oh, so it was kind of a mixture of both. So I'll start with this story. So when I worked for a state political party, we were working on multiple campaigns at once. And it was one of the states where there was a gubernatorial election. So we had a lot going on with that. And I had just left Louisiana right after Hurricane Katrina. And it was one of the few states where their economy was doing worse than Louisiana's post-Katrina. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's crazy. 
But that was the 2006 election. And I remember the state officials, the folks that I was working with, the campaign was entirely about Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton and demonizing Democrats. They didn't make it about this one state where there really were, I thought, some very unique reasons to focus on the economy of that state and say, Democrats didn't do X, Y, or Z, and that's why we're in this position. And so the fact that it was just playing politics and it had nothing to do with factual information started to kind of really turn me off. And then I got to D.C. I got to Virginia and I was I remember the 2008 election. I remember 2009 and 2010. And I started getting chain emails from people that I knew and respected. Well, you know, that I knew and loved. They were honestly mostly family and close family friends and things like that. They would send these chain emails that would have outright fabrications and inaccurate information. And so from a policy standpoint, I would reply and I would say, hey, that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is X, Y, or Z. And they would say, no, it doesn't matter. And so I think where I got caught up, and I think part of what got me to question the basis of the policies that I was advocating for is that I started to realize that a lot of those policies weren't being done for their actual policy aims. They were being done and being framed in some of these things that I was not comfortable with that didn't match my values. I mean, I remember in college, and I never did this, but I remember that there was something that went out to the college Republicans that encouraged us to talk about illegal immigration, about undocumented immigrants. And they said, oh, do this event on campus. Make it a Catch a Mexican Day. Oh God! And you were supposed to dress someone up in a sombrero, and 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 run around on campus, and then when people got offended or upset, tell them how you felt about illegal immigration. And I remember even then going, "Okay, no, no, that's not a thing that should be done." Yeah. And but I didn't I didn't walk away from it. And so I think where I am now in my life, and I think now where a lot of us in society are is we're realizing those things are not okay and we shouldn't even entertain them and we can't dismiss them. And as a Republican, I was dismissing it. I was in the party that was advocating for doing it. And I thought, eh, it's just a fringe. It's just a small piece. It's just, I can say no. And now I don't even feel comfortable that they would propose that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I guess that's probably the biggest difference is like I went from being okay and comfortable with it existing, but not participating to, yeah, no, this shouldn't even be a thing. And we need to actively say no. I don't know if you would agree with this, that the fringe seems to be the loudest. And I don't think that most Republicans would be okay with that game. I would probably agree. I would say that part of the reason I did definitively leave the Republican Party and not even entertain the notion of going back is because that fringe is bigger than it appears. Uh Um, I would say it's a more significant group than I would want it to be. But I do think that there are a lot of Republicans who know that that's wrong, who would not participate in it, and in fact would potentially even challenge loved ones or friends or people that they knew that participated or laughed at it, but they don't leave the party. And I think that's the big piece that finally became too much for me is I went, I'm out. 
And I think that right now we're at an inflection point where there's going to have to be more Republicans that say, I'm out. Yeah. Than there are. And I think that there are a number of Republicans who are willing to challenge it and say, this is wrong, but we need to change it. And I think there are a lot of people willing to stay in the party and try to make those changes internally, perhaps, or have told themselves that that's what they'll do. And I just don't know. I got to a point where I didn't think it was possible. The the sheer size of that contingency and the people who will look the other way so they can get a lower tax cut, so they can get a business break. I mean, it, it just, it got to a point where I wasn't comfortable. I think, especially being in this area, because it's a pretty liberal area overall, the DC metro area, if we include the suburbs of Virginia and Maryland, um, like if we compare even Democrats to Berkeley Democrats, like there's no comparison between oh, no. these, right? I'm envisioning like a, a red to like light pink in any party. To me, it seems here that Republicans in the DC metro area tend to lean a little bit more moderate as compared to other areas. And what I have found in my own experience is folks who are still part of the party, you know, some some are down with everything and are thrilled to be still part of the party. But I think there are many that are part of it just because they may not agree with everything, but they are loyal. And I think people tend like, like to their sports teams, to their party, they tend to be loyal. Although some, I think, feel lost. I think a lot of Republicans around here from my own conversations seem to be like without a party. Like they just don't know what's going on with their party. Don't I feel agree that. with that. I mean, okay. So you kind of have your group that is all in, right? So, I mean, some of my first interactions with the alt-right I mean, Richard Spencer lives here in Alexandria, right? So there is a contingency of people in the D.C. area who are all in on the populist, nationalistic side of the Republican Party that has been revealed. Then there are the people who are truly core conservatives, the never Trumpers, the ones that are focused in on the Rand Paul types that are more libertarian Republicans where they want smaller government, less interaction, tax reform, that sort of thing. Then you have your business-minded Republicans and you have your neoconservative Republicans that want, you know, big nation building style things. So I think you have all these different flavors and some of them are all in the same person. But I definitely agree with you that there are people who are fully bought in that are working for the administration or working on the Hill. There are people who are keeping their heads down and trying to stay focused on good policy I think a lot of the members of Congress who we saw that were trying to focus on the good policy decided to leave Congress entirely. A lot of the retirements in the 2018 cycle were those people who are trying to just do their job and do their job well and focus on the policy and ignore some of the insanity. I think you have a lot of that within the administration, people who work for or are leading say the FDA or DEA, you have people who are dedicated public servants who are trying to focus on the work and doing good work. And then you have the people who are lost. I have a number of people who I met in Republican circles, people I was friends with, and we were all Republicans who have either left the party or I had one who even applied for a job with the administration and they brought her in only to tell her that she was being denied because she had an anti-Trump post on her Facebook. Wow. And so, so you have that where she's like, I do good work, 
I was willing to go and work for a Republican administration. I was going to go and do the actual work that needed to get done. And yet it was this kind of petty moment. And now she doesn't consider herself a Republican anymore. She's leaving the party. Wow. It's just an interesting dynamic. And I just, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of Republicans who feel lost and they don't know how much of the party is what they believed it to be and how much of the party is what Trump believes it to be. Yeah, I would agree with you. I agree. With I you. think that's, that's the big question. How much of the Republican base is Trump and how much of the Republican base is what we've always thought Republicans were? Those core values. Right. So we're going to pivot just a little bit. So you work for a local trade association. You know, I think for a lot of people, even in DC, lobbyist is a dirty word. You are tech, like, that's not your title. Your title is the director of federal government affairs. Is that right? For federal government affairs. And you, you are a lobbyist. So tell us what a lobbyist does every day. Well, so I see lobbying and I think obviously there's a lot of boogeyman style conversations that go on about lobbyists. I like to joke that I'm a swamp monster, but <laughs> ever since Trump said, drain the swamp, right? But I just really see lobbying fundamentally is about education. You have a lot of people who are elected to Congress every year. You have their, or every other year, you have their staff that come in from a variety of different backgrounds, and they are expected to make policy about any number of issues that face our country. So you have people who were veterinarians who are coming in and who are going to be asked to make decisions about energy policy. And I think there's an expectation that, those people are supposed to just know where to go and what to think and how to do some of these detailed legislative proposals and whether or not this is the right approach. And frankly, that's a lot to expect of anyone. So I see lobbying as fundamentally an opportunity to share information. So my job is to share information with members of Congress about the industry, about pieces of legislation, how they would impact the industry, and to communicate back to then the executives about what's going on in Congress and how it's going to impact their business. So I see myself as basically an educator. And part of my job is also then to bring those executives up to Congress to say, this is my business. This is how many people I employ. This is what kind of thing happens. And we've had some really interesting successes with that. For example, you know, there was a piece of legislation that was introduced that was going to have a huge impact on our industry. And it wasn't the intention. They were trying to get it something further downstream and we were just going to get roped into it. So we brought that member of Congress in for a tour and showed them what the impact would be. And he's like, oh, so what you're saying is my bill would make you do this instead of this. And we said, yes. And he goes, oh, what? We don't need to do that. (laughs) So the next time he introduced the legislation, because it didn't go anywhere, that Congress The next time he introduced the legislation, and he didn't give us a carve out, but he gave us more time to comply, which was really something we needed if they weren't going to take it out. But it was all about showing that member, here's what would happen. And I think that's fundamentally the job of a lobbyist is to explain the information. And there are lobbyists on all sides of every issue. There are times when I'm aligned with other members of the industry, and there's times when we're not. So it's about presenting information to the members of Congress. And if they agree, they agree. If they don't, many times they'll tell you to your face. I had one staffer that said, yeah, I don't care. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was like, okay, well, there's that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I was a lobbyist for some time too, you know, in my past life. And uh, it's funny you say there's lobbyists on all sides. You know, you've got to be pretty in, you've got to figure out that piece of where you're going to slow that person down, who you're talking to, and really get them to actually listen, have that conversation with you in order to have that influence. Because isn't it true that those Hill staffers, I mean, you might be one of 15 people they talk to on a myriad of issues that day. So, you know, you've really got to be prepped for those meetings. Absolutely. And you have to be able to distill an issue down to something that's manageable and something they can understand. So if you could put anything on a billboard, that's a Tim Ferriss question. Mm-hmm. If you could put anything on a billboard for folks in DC to drive past every single day, what would it be? We have term limits. They're called elections. <laughs> ah, funny. Okay. <laughs> I get so frustrated with this concept of it. It's because of my lobbyist perspective. So the thing about term limits is It takes time to learn an issue. It takes time for a good piece of legislation, especially the biggest pieces, to ultimately get passed. They have to go through multiple iterations. They go through multiple Congresses. The one of the biggest pieces of legislation I ever worked with took 10 years before it passed. And when you term limit a member of Congress, you turn over the work of that long game for policy over to people like me. That's where you have lobbyists who would be writing the legislation because we would be the only ones here long enough to see it come to fruition. So if you term limit arbitrarily, you say, oh, you're only going to get three terms. You are limiting the scope that the Congress can actually take. You're limiting that institutional knowledge and you're limiting the influence a really good lawmaker may be able to have. You look at John Dingell. John Dingell was in Congress for nearly 60 years, which is crazy because his dad was in Congress for like 20 something years. And now his wife took his seat. And if she serves for, I think it was 20 years, then there will be a Dingell in that seat for a century. (laughs) Wow, you're right. Which is crazy. But John Dingell was such an effective leader. He was such an effective member of Congress. He was there on these really landmark pieces of legislation. And I don't think anyone would have wanted him to leave just because of term limits. So what we need is competitive elections. What we need is to address things like gerrymandering in the states so that we have competitive districts. And what we need is to be comfortable. And I think a lot of people in DC are not, but I think we need to be comfortable with primary challenges. And you have to do a good job and you have to get your message out there and you have to campaign hard, which of course makes them more dependent on money. So then there's the campaign finance tie-in, but I digress. (laughs) Well, we'll have to on again because all those things are really interesting to me as well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And really important, I think. People don't realize that if you don't have members of Congress who are there for a while, you end up with people like me doing all the work. And then we just go and explain it to the next member that's taking that seat. And they're like, okay, cool. We'll do that. Yeah. You're just so starting. You don't want to do that. You don't want to have a professional lobbying class that is actually doing all the lawmaking. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that one. So three more questions. So I think 
one thing that really drives you and puts you in these places since you were 16 and probably even before that, you are so confident. Like, what are two things mm-hmm. you would say to parents? I know yours are little, but if you can sort of think back or think, what has given you that confidence that you would go into any room and, and feel comfortable speaking? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, like, how do we get these confident girls? Like, what do we need to do? You know, I, I, I guess I haven't really thought of that. I mean, certainly what I'm trying to instill in both my daughter and my son is to not be afraid to fail. Mm. I think that there are a lot of people who are afraid to fail, who let that idea that they might not succeed stop them. I just ran for office. I ran for school board um, here in Alexandria. I lost, but I was okay with losing because putting myself out there and trying and doing the work was just as exciting to me as, as the opportunity to serve. And so while I'm, you know, angling for what else I'm going to do to provide the service to my community, that was my actual goal. I wasn't afraid to lose. And I didn't want to lose, but I wasn't afraid to. And I want our children, both boys and girls, to not be afraid to have it not work. You're not going to be great at everything. You're not going to be the next LeBron James just because you picked up a basketball, you know? And you're not going to be the world's greatest lobbyist just because you stepped into into the arena. It takes work, but you can't be afraid to fail because you learn things from everything you do. You learn when you succeed and you learn when you fail. So maybe that's what I would leave it with. <laughs> I love that. And, and I think maybe the other part of that, you know, not being afraid to fail and being okay with not having all the answers. Because I just think your whole story and, and even where you are today, you went through everything with an open mind. I think a lot of people come to political debates or any kind of situation and they have these preconceived notions. They're not ready to sort of start with a blank slate. So, you know, you come in with your ideas and you're ready to argue. One already knows their talking points. So there's only so far you're going to move that person. There's only so far you as a human being can progress if you already have, you're in your box and you're not planning to open it up and really listen. There's this line from the West Wing that, I love the West Wing, by the way. But there's this line that one of the characters uses uh, to describe the opponent in their presidential debate. And he says, it's the fortune cookie candidacy. I before E, except after C. And it's this moment where you realize... Like that's that's kind of what most people approach their politics. And I, you know, I said earlier that there were times when I was just parroting talking points. That's where it comes in, is that even we as educated voters don't know everything there is to know about every issue. And we want to. And so we fool ourselves into thinking, this isn't about the border. This is about enforcement of law. You know, and you're like, okay, well, it's so much more complicated than that. <laughs> So I think that especially when you get outside of DC and in DC, you see this less because you do have people who actually work for the department of justice or work for ICE or, or, you know, what have you, but you get out into the rest of the United States and you really hear people default to what little snippets they've been able to pick up. And sometimes they'll feel really passionately about something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they know all the different dynamics that if you're a policy person in DC, that you have to take into account to decide where you're going to go on it. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it's not just when you go farther out that people are just using their talking points, right? I think I see that here too, where people are just, oh, yeah. right. You still have that here. I mean, 
So my first job in DC, I was an intern on Capitol Hill, and I interned for a senator who was already leaving. But I remember the calls I had to field because when I was working there was when there was a piece of NAFTA that was just coming into being. Essentially, it had passed, obviously, in the 90s, but it got held up in the courts for like eight, nine years. (laughs) And so it was finally happening. And there was this group that got all these people to call us and say, don't let the trucks come over the border. Stop the Mexican trucks. And I remember as just this intern being like, well, actually, here's the 17 different things that we're doing to ensure the safety (laughs) of these trucks and the inspections they have to go through. And nobody cares. <laughs> I think I think that's the real thing is that it's hard to get anyone to care about the 17 different protection mechanisms that we did to try to make sure this would be safe. <laughs> that, that's such a nerdy DC story. Well, exactly. <laughs> but, it, but it's also true. It's, it's like, okay, I understand you have this fear. So here's the you know 12 things we're going to do to try to alleviate that. Yeah. It's way easier to just stay firm and say, no, I want a wall, you know, and you're going, well, but no, there's a whole bunch of other things we could do that would be better. Anyway. That's true. No, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I guess I just had two more questions. What do you think is the most fundamental thing that we can do to elevate the level of political debate? So we're not just throwing, you know, words, labels on each other and casting accusations, presuming, you know, having a lot of prejudice coming to our conversations. Like, I, I guess I'm kind of answering well, what I think is, is the answer there. But what do you think we need to do? I mean, we've got all these other things, right? We've got social media, we've got cable network, where they're just feeding folks with this all day. I don't watch the news. I hardly listen to NPR anymore. Frankly, if I have a real deep question, I just text you because I know that you're going to come <laughs> even if we don't always agree on everything, which I don't think you should always agree with anyone on anything anyway. But um, what can the average person do to kind of stay level-headed and open-minded and maybe not get caught up in sort of these really vitriolic conversations, but still but still have conversations that can kind of move us forward? I think we have to learn to ask why, and not just of other people, but of ourselves. So let's say I firmly believe I mean, I I keep defaulting to this immigration issue, but let's say I firmly believe that there should be a wall. Why? Come up with that answer. Why? Come up with that answer. And I think the more we ask ourselves why, the more we can get to what is our value? What is my personal stake in this issue? What is the value that I'm trying to achieve? And then go back and say, okay, does this thing that I've said I support follow that value? Because that's ultimately how I ended up making my own migration from being a Republican to a Democrat, as I asked why enough times where I said, that answer doesn't make sense to me anymore. And the problem that I'm saying I have with it, this isn't a solution that fixes that. And then I think when we listen to other people that we need to also ask why we need to bring back that curiosity that says, okay, you support this. Can I ask why? Can you help me understand what are the values here that you're trying to dive into? And I think that's what I try to do on my Facebook feed is I ask why. I say, okay, I hear you saying that, but I want to understand more. And I think a lot of people use, I think the danger in asking why is you don't want to fall into the trap where you're asking why because you're trying to lead them into a problem. I love that though. I think you're absolutely right. 
how do people learn more about Raising Our Future and um, how do they get in touch with you to sign up for the course for folks going on maternity leave? Yeah. So um, the e-course for those going on maternity leave is mindfulreturn.com, Mindful Return. And they are on Facebook. They also have a paternity course, a course about going back to work and fixing your wardrobe. And now they just launched a course that is specifically for parents of special needs students too. Um, So, you know, obviously some unique challenges there. So mindfulreturn.com. And then for Raising Our Future, we are raisingourfuture.org. We also are on Facebook. We do a lot of updates on our Facebook. And we have our donation page on the website and on Facebook. You know, we had a lot of champions this year. So if they want to find out more, they can absolutely visit our Facebook page and visit our homepage and check us out. We are pretty excited about the work that we're doing. We had even a member of Congress and and now member of Congress when she was a candidate, we contributed to her campaign. And then she actually contributed to the PAC as well. And that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, a lot of success. Well, I wish you a ton of success. I mean, I know I'll talk to you in like 13 minutes and then two days. So I, <laughs> but um, yeah, just sort of publicly, I wish you so much success with everything. I can't wait to see what's next. And I thank you for everything you're doing to make the world a better place because you really are. Oh, thank you, Sheena. I mean, compared to you, I'm doing nothing, but. <laughs> no, I'm just doing it in different ways. That's all. And I That's love all. what you do. And thank you for what you're doing. And uh, congrats on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I know you've got stuff to get back to and so do I. So thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Talk to you soon, Sheena. Well, that's a wrap. Until next time, be well, my friends.